One of the things we've said throughout the years is, um, I don't know why you're here, right? Um, And frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't even always know why it is that we're in a certain place. And uh, But one thing that we do know for sure is that the Bible, Psalm 139, makes it clear that all the days ordained for you were written in God's book of life before one of them came to pass. And so this day, sitting here in this theater, is not a surprise to God. And so God has something or someone that he wants you to experience. And so it would be my prayer today that that would happen, that God uh, would introduce himself to you, that God would remind you of who he is and that he's pursuing you. And so again, we welcome you to Seven Hills Fellowship, and it's my prayer that you would have an encounter with the living God. Let me take a moment, let me introduce the, the, uh, the theme or, and the series that we're in right now. So we're in a little series right now called Truth and Art, Truth and Art. And uh, this is the fourth time we've done this series. We um, did a Truth and Art series where we looked at different uh, music. And, uh, and essentially what we're looking at in music was we're saying, you know, that music and really all art is always sort of calling out to some sort of transcendental idea, right? Some idea of beauty or truth or that which is right or that which is wrong or that which is good. And so by definition, if there's a, this transcendental idea of what is right, wrong, true, or good, then that leads you back to a transcendent being. And we would say that transcendent being is the one who created us, the one who's the author of reality. And so that's not just true in music, but it's also true with authors. Authors are, they're writing books and throughout the books they're writing, they're making truth claims about the nature of reality, right? And, and then today, and in this series, this is our last Sunday of a series called Truth and Art, and we're looking at painters. And uh, so, so far we've looked at three different painters. Um, we started off by looking at Picasso. And so Picasso was a cubist, and his particular art form uh, was ultimately sort of a a visual manifestation of his worldview. He did not believe in the existence of God. What he did believe, however, was in the exercise of power, and his particular exercise of power was over other people. And part of what happened as he exercised power over other people is he deconstructed them psychologically, right? He deconstructed them in all sorts of unhealthy ways, and that bled through in his art. Cubism is a, is a fracturing and a deconstruction of humanity. It's more than that, but it's at least that as well. Uh, Bob preached on Mako Fujimura, and uh, his art was essentially designed in order to, to give you a vision of beauty, right? To turn your eyes to that which is beautiful as a reminder that God created this world, and he is the author of beauty. Last week, we looked at Edvard Munch. And uh, he was a nihilist, nihilist, and essentially the outworking of his art, if you guys remember, was very clear that what came out in his art was this desperation and this fear of death, which is a logical conclusion if there is no God, right? If there is nothing transcendent, it's just the end. And so he was terrified of death. Today we're going to be looking at a female artist named Frida Kahlo. And uh, before we jump into um, looking at some of her work and, uh, and talking about where it sort of um, intersects with Scripture, I'm going to invite us to pray for just a moment. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have today um, to come before you and to worship you. I pray, Father, that you would let no one leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Uh, Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Frida Kahlo was uh, born in Mexico City in 1907. She died in 1954, so she died an early death. And uh, she was a a self-taught painter. In fact, the way that she began painting is that she was in a pretty horrific 
bus accident that broke uh, different parts of her spinal column and broke her hip. She actually spent her entire life coming in and out of other surgeries. It was really pretty miserable, but that's when she began painting. And, uh, and technically, people would say that she's in a school of painting called the Surrealists. Like if you guys are familiar with, with Salvador Dali, you know, it's melting clocks and all sorts of bizarre things. But the idea behind surrealism is what they were trying to do is they were trying to tap into the unconscious mind. What's interesting about that, though, is when Jung uh, analyzed their artwork, he said, you can't paint your unconscious mind because it becomes conscious the moment you're painting it. But it doesn't change the fact anyway that surrealism is a very interesting art form. Now, what's interesting about Frida is that if you look at her various uh, sort of you know paintings over the years, almost all of them are self-portraits. And so what she's very clearly saying there is she's, she's saying, I'm trying to communicate something to you about who I am, uh, about what I believe, about what I think, about what I value. And so let me do this really quickly. Let me, I'm going to show you a couple paintings. You're not going to be able to see them very well because the lighting's pretty pitiful in here. But this first painting is actually a painting of her and her husband, Diego. And now Diego is a famous artist, and you can't see the picture particularly well. But what you see, this is a year after they're married. What you do see is there's a little space between them, and he looks huge and she looks small. And what you can't see in the painting because it's too grainy in this picture is that he's just sort of barely holding her hand, right? And what she's doing is very, very sort of soon after their marriage, she began painting pictures that, that really showed this distance between the two of them. You can tell he's even sort of facing the other direction. Now, here's the next picture. So shortly after they are married, and you unfortunately cannot see this at all, but it became very uh, apparent quickly that he was um, uh, having a, an extramarital affair. And so what this painting is, is it's a picture, and what you can't see is in the bottom left-hand corner of the picture is a, is a huge heart, and the heart is bleeding across the bottom of the painting. And in it, on the left-hand side is her schoolgirl uniform, and on the right-hand side is a picture of this dress, the dress of an adult woman, and she's in the middle. But this painting is, is titled The Broken Heart. And so it's actually not all that subtle. What it's saying is, my heart has been broken by the one who pledged to be loyal and faithful to me. Next slide. This slide is called The Wounded Deer, right? Wounded heart, wounded deer. Now, it's, it's a surrealism painting in the sense that her head is on the, uh, the body of a stag, clearly. What you can't see is that there are probably eight or ten different arrows sticking out of her. And again, she's bleeding. The message is very clear my heart has been wounded by the one who is supposed to love me and sacrifice for me. Next slide. This is called the two Fridas. The Frida on the left is dressed in, in uh, traditional Mexican clothing. The Frida on the right is dressed in more modern clothing. And uh, you, there's a pair of scissors in her left hand. There's blood on her dress. And her dress is open where her heart is exposed. And there's a tube running from her heart into the heart of the other Frida. And again, what is being communicated there is that my heart has been broken. That was the old me. And there's a new me that's being formed in light of this infidelity, in light of the brokenness of my husband. Next slide. Uh, this is called the wounded table. And, uh, and you, again, you just can't see it well enough to know. But there's all sorts of symbolism in here. Diego is on her right uh, your left, and he's pictured as a monster. On either side of the table, on the left-hand side, there are children. On the right-hand side, there are deer. But again, the message of this is she's painting a picture of how he has wounded her, right? And this, these are, by the way, just so you know, she painted for, you know, roughly 30 years. This, this was not an isolated theme, right? This was a very constant theme in their relationship. Next slide. So the next slide, this is a picture. This is one of the last pictures that she painted. 
And this was actually right before she died. She painted this in a hospital where she had uh, gone through yet another surgery. And uh, what you can see in this picture, or what you can't see in this picture, but you could see in this picture if the lighting was better, is that her hair is down. And one of the things that Diego always asked is that she wore her hair down. He loved it when she wore her hair down. And, uh, and not only that, but there's a picture of him on her forehead. In other words, he, she can't get him off of her mind, right? And so I'm just going to call time out there on all the pictures and just simply say this. Her art, Frida's art, very clearly, very, very clearly displayed the damage that her husband's infidelity did to her. And not only that, but they were divorced and then they remarried and he, was, he continued to be a chronic infidel. And so, but what she's doing is she's painting all of this pain and all of this brokenness and all of this woundedness, right? Her art clearly displays a deep desire to be chosen, to be loved, to be sacrificed for, right? She has this deep longing for her husband. And what's interesting about this is this shouldn't be surprising to us that A, that it had this impact on her, or B, that that's her deep desire, because that's the deep desire of all of us. It's the deep desire of all of us that we would be chosen, that we would be loved, that someone would sacrifice themselves for us. Unfortunately, many of us, if not most of us, lived in homes where the exact opposite happened. We lived in homes with relationships with people who were supposed to protect us, who were supposed to choose us exclusively and love us exclusively, but they didn't. And so many of you in this room have felt the pain of that betrayal that is so crushing that threatens to undo us. And that's what we see in these paintings of her. And again, I could show you many, many more that show just the psychological and the relational burden and the weight that is upon her crushing her, threatening to undo her. There's a woman named Rose Mary Ringer who has written several different books on relationships, and she blogs regularly. And uh, recently I ran across an article of hers um, on divorce and death. And let me just begin this by saying I'm not arguing in this that, that uh, divorce is harder than death. That is what she's arguing, but I'm really using this as an illustration of the pain of divorce. But here's what she writes in this um, article on divorce and death. She says, A few years ago, I met a woman in her 50s, and we became fast friends. She had lost a long-term husband to death and then a second husband to divorce. So I asked her my question, which is harder? She laughed out loud and said, Rosemary, it's no contest. The divorce nearly swamped me. The death was so much easier to deal with on every single front. Years ago, my father walked out one night, and that was the end of his 28-year-old-year marriage to my mother, and also the end of his relationship with me, his 14-year-old daughter. This is Rosemary writing personally now. My mother was devastated, and she often said, divorce is much harder than death. And I knew she was right. She told me then, in both divorce and death, there's loss and separation and so much sadness, but divorce adds rejection and deep emotional pain to that mix. You look back at all those memories and promises and I love yous, and you realize that every single one of them is now tainted, so you don't even really have the memories. As my mother said so succinctly, no one shows up at the door with casseroles when your no-good husband abandons you, her words. You're an embarrassment, and you're also embarrassed, and people wonder what kind of wife you really were. Death would have been so much easier than this. Do you see the shame kind of coming out? She feels ashamed at who she was, or at least how people might have perceived that she was. She's embarrassed. She goes on to say, my mother was right, but I didn't realize how right she was until my own marriage ended after 24 years. He and I had met in the third grade. 
and become high school sweethearts. I'd known him my whole life, and when the marriage was over, I realized just how right my mother had been. When my marriage ended, several family members, as well as my lifelong church, distanced themselves from me, and that was a twist of the knife that nearly cost me my sanity. It almost undid her, right? That's exactly the same thing that we see. This woundedness is exactly what we see in all of these self-portraits of Frida Kahlo. She's devastated. And what Frida deserved and what Rosemary Ringer deserved, right, and what we all deserve in marriage is to be loved, to be sacrificed for, and to be chosen exclusively. It's exactly what the Bible tells us about the marriage relationship, that it's supposed to be exclusive, that it's supposed to be permanent, right, that it's supposed to be sacrificial love. Now, we're going to read Ephesians 5 in just a minute, and I'm going to clarify this very quickly. Ephesians 5, in the section we're reading, is written explicitly to husbands. And so I'm going to be talking to myself today as a husband, and I'm going to be talking to those of you in the room today who are husbands. But the truth is, we've all been impacted by a husband, by a father, by a son. This, this all applies to us. But again, it's going to be primarily um, spoken to those of us in the room who are husbands. Let me uh, read beginning at verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, what uh, Paul is writing here is that God sacrificed, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, that we might flourish, right? That we might be the human beings that God created us to be, that we might be the best we can be, that we might be declared righteous, that we might be declared not guilty. And husbands are to love their wives in the same way with that end goal of making them beautiful, right? We'll, we'll jump back in. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So let's take a moment and let's look and see just a couple of things that we see in this passage. By the way, there's a lot more here than what I'm going to cover, but I'm going to cover at least three things. First is this, that husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. Verse 25 says this very clearly, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the first thing we see is that as husbands, we are called to love our wives sacrificially. So the question is, how did Christ give himself up from the, for the church? Right? How did he lay down his life? The answer, of course, and its most obvious answer, is that he died on the cross in order to declare us righteous, to set us free from the bonds of sin. So he laid down his life. But he also gave up his comfort, right? I don't know how comfortable heaven is, but I'm assuming it's more comfortable than the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, right? He gave up his position, right? He gave up his position at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He gave up his honor, right? I mean, how we don't understand that because most of us don't have honor in our particular culture, but he gave up this position and this place of being honored by all. He gave up his preferences. He even gave up the exercise of his power. Jesus laid all of those things aside. He sacrificed all of those things in order to love the church, in order to love us well. And so the question is, if Christ willingly sacrificed all of those things for the church, then how should husbands be willing to sacrifice for their wives? I'm going to answer by telling a story. 
There's a man named Wayne Grudem. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with Wayne Grudem. And uh, he's a brilliant systematic theologian. Uh, He was trained at Harvard and then went on to do graduate work at Westminster and then Cambridge. And uh, he was given a position as a systematic theologian at Trinity Evangelical up in Chicago. And so if you're an evangelical and, uh, and slightly reformed, this is not exactly the pinnacle of the mountain, but it's about as good as it gets, right? And so he had this great position. He'd been teaching there on the faculty of Trinity for 20 years when his wife was in a very serious car accident. And this car accident, accident uh, left her in constant and chronic pain. And part of the constant and chronic pain was brought about by the weather that was there in Chicago. It was exacerbated by cold weather, and it was exacerbated by humid weather. If any of you guys have ever been to Chicago, two of the things that Chicago has going for it is that it's really cold and it's very humid, right? Because it's right off the lake there. And so over the course of that next two years, her pain got worse and worse and worse. And uh, they tried to treat it in any number of different ways, but it just didn't get any better. Uh, There were several years where the only way that she could fall asleep was by taking uh, pain medication and sleep medication. Well, there was a point at which during uh, all of this um, suffering and all of this trauma that someone that was there in Chicago offered uh, to let the Grudems use um, a house that they owned in Phoenix, Arizona for a couple week vacation. And uh, Wayne Grudem jokes around and says, you know, when you're in ministry, you take the free stuff because it's what you can afford. And so he went down to Phoenix, Arizona with his wife for two weeks. And he said something interesting happened. He said within the first couple days of being there, he said, my, pi- my, my wife's pain almost entirely went away. No humidity, right? No cold weather. And so they spent the two weeks there, and it was great. As soon as they went back to Chicago, the pain came back again. Uh, the next spring, the same uh, family that owned this house in Phoenix said, hey, go use it again. And so they went again. Same thing. The pain dissipated, went away. Uh, a third time, they were offered the home. They went down to the home. And this time, uh, they were talking, and they said, you know, what would, it, what would it be like for us to live in a place like this? Your pain would, would, would go away, essentially. And so they started looking through the yellow pages, and they found in the yellow pages a little seminary called Phoenix Seminary. And so they agreed to go check out this seminary. And he, it's funny, he saves the yellow pages, so he uses it when he gives a talk on it sometimes. But he said, we went to visit the seminary, and he said, the first thing I noticed when I walked in the library is that I had more books than their entire library had. My personal library was bigger than their library. And so he said, you know, they were a little bit deflated, but they went back to Chicago and they started talking about, like, you know, what if, you know, what if, what if I got a position at Phoenix Seminary? What if we moved down there and what if we could live there? And so he basically tells the story of them really praying about it and thinking about it and then eventually making the decision to take a position there at Phoenix uh, Theological Seminary, um, moving from Trinity, sort of this, you know, amazing place to this little podunk, know-nothing school, but he was willing to make that sacrifice for his wife that she might flourish. Does that make sense? So he, so he left his position, he left his power, he left the notoriety, he left the, all of those things behind in order to love his wife. He sacrificed for his wife. That's just one of the many ways in which we are called as husbands to sacrifice for our wives. Now, I could give you a list of what those sacrifices might be, but what I would simply encourage you to do is I would encourage you to take some time and, and really pursue God in prayer and say, okay, God, how is it that I can love my wife sacrificially? Show me how it is that I might sacrifice for her because I love her. The next thing we see in this passage is that not only are husbands called to love their wives sacrificially, like Christ gave himself up for the church, but husbands are to love their wives intuitively. Now, it doesn't say that, but that's the word I chose to make it kind of fit. Uh, But let's read verse 28, and you can kind of see what I mean. 
Verse 28 says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, we very intuitively love ourselves, right? We don't really have to think about it a whole lot. It's very intuitive. If we get tired, we take a nap or grab a cup of coffee. We don't really have to think about it too much. If we get hungry, we might, you know, make a sandwich or grab a snack. Again, I don't have to think real hard about loving myself in that way. If we feel stressed, we might take a few minutes to go for a walk or we might go work out. If you're an extrovert and you're feeling lonely, you might call up a friend to hang out. Or if you're an introvert and you've had too much people time, you might go for a hike by yourself in order to recharge. One of the things that we know about ourselves as human beings is we are fiercely committed to loving ourselves. And for the most part, this love that we have for ourselves, this self-love, is very, very intuitive. And I think what Ephesians is telling us here is that our love for our wives should be as much of a default position as loving ourselves. Now, part of the story that Wayne Grudem tells about um, moving down to Phoenix Seminary, he said during that deliberation process, while we were still in Chicago, he said, you know, we had been talking about the possibility and we had been discussing it back and forth. And, and he said, we just couldn't really come to a peace about it. And he said, I was actually speaking on Ephesians chapter 5. And he said the, the irony of this was, was pretty thick because he's written a lot on marriage and he's written a lot on gender. And he said it was a little bit ironic that I was literally preparing for this talk and I read this particular verse, Ephesians five twenty eight. And he said, I read, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he thought to himself, he said, if I were in pain, if I were in constant chronic pain, how long would it take me to make the decision to move down to Phoenix and to go someplace where I wouldn't hurt anymore. And so he said, he went to his wife and he said, Margaret, he said, just, just wondering. He said, you know, if I were in your shoes and I felt your pain, and he said, if I had the chance to move to Phoenix, how long would it make, take me to make that decision? And he's a real sweet guy and she's a real sweet lady. And, and he didn't throw under the bus at all. And she didn't throw him under the bus, but he said, she just kind of laughed and smiled, right? The answer was clear. He, she essentially was saying, it wouldn't take you long at all to make that decision, right? You, you, would, you would decide to love yourself and to remove that pain as quickly as you could. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that loving our wives as husbands intuitively, I'm not saying to be an enabler, that's not loving. I'm not saying to be a coward and not ever say hard things, that's not loving. I'm not saying to be a placator in relationship. Each of those stances in marriage are actually not loving, right? They're self-loving, but they're not other loving, right? And Trust me, if you have any questions about that, just come see me afterwards and I can give you lots of data personally on that. What I am saying is that in order to begin to love our wives diligently and intuitively, we have to be vigilant in discovering what makes our wives feel loved. And we have to be vigilant in discovering what is truly loving to them, right? So the first step towards becoming intuitive and loving our wives is to be vigilant in finding out what is loving towards them, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. In order for something to become intuitive, you have to do it a lot first. Then all of a sudden it just becomes sort of second nature. Uh, when I was in college, I don't know why, but I started flipping my pen and uh, I practiced a lot at pen flipping for some reason. I'm not sure why. I wish I'd practice other things that much. And so now, whenever, like today at Curious, if I have a pen in my hand, I, I wouldn't be thinking about it, but I'll be talking and I'll be flipping the pen like this. It's just utterly intuitive. But it, it became intuitive because I practiced it over and over again, but for, you know, when I was 18, right? And so there's a sense in which that's what Paul is saying here, is he's saying you need to be vigilant in discovering what is loving to your wives, so much so that it becomes second nature, just like loving yourself, right? It needs to become intuitive. You don't even have to think that 
hard about it. It's such a default position in your heart. Love your wife sacrificially, love her intuitively. And then we see finally here in this passage that husbands are to love their wives loyally, to be loyal to them. That their relationship with their wives is to be faithful. In fact, it's to be the the primary fidelity, um, second only to their relationship with God. Here's what verse 31 says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is actually a quote from Genesis 2.24. So it's a quotation of the Old Testament before the fall. And so the reason this is important, this idea of leaving and cleaving, is because it is before sin entered in the world. And so this is actually ontology, right? This is how God created husbands and wives to be. He created husbands to leave their first fidelity toward their family, which is a temporary fidelity, and move into a new fidelity of this relationship with their wife to create a new home, to create a new covenant family. It's part of our intended creation, right? It's how God made us to be, to create this new union with one another. And the cost of it is leaving that first union, that first family. So that's one thing we see here. The second thing we see here is that marriage is about fidelity and loyalty. Now, it's about fidelity and loyalty in a lot of different ways, but it's about fidelity and loyalty precisely, and in particular, in this context, it means um, that even though our first loyalty was with our parents, now, after we're married, our fidelity is to our wife and to our new marriage first and foremost. And so what I would encourage you husbands to do out there is to ask yourselves, what or whom am I primarily loyal to? So I would encourage us to ask ourselves, what am I really primarily loyal to? Are we loyal still to our family unit, our parents, right? Or are you more loyal and more faithful to your new wife? Um, Are you more loyal to your job than you are to your wife? Are you more loyal to golf or to working out, right? Or maybe you're more loyal to your buddies or are you more loyal to your wife? Let me call time out here really quickly. I preached this sermon one time, not this sermon, I preached a sermon like this elsewhere, And it was so interesting because later that week, somebody called me up and they said, hey, by the way, um, I don't know if I appreciate you talking about me in the middle of the service. And it was a husband who literally thought like that I was calling him out. I was like, dude, I didn't even think about you, man. (laughs) But the very fact that we're talking right now probably is an indicator you got some work to do, right? (laughs) He was a great guy, but he literally thought I was calling him out. What this is saying is that we're to leave our prior loyalties and in the Greek and really in the Hebrew too, they're both there. The idea is that we're to leave, but we're supposed to cleave or to glue or to cement ourselves to our wives. I mean, imagine, you know, there's a drowning person uh, out in the middle of the ocean and a log floats by that's floating. You would hold on to that thing for dear life. That's that idea of cleaving to this new fidelity. One last thing that we see in this passage. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, both these words, leave and cleave, communicate ongoing action. So technically, what they really say is be leaving and be cleaving, right? Be leaving and be cleaving. And the reason that they're written that way, I think, is because we're always tempted to return to those old loyalties. This is the way we did it in my home, right? We're tempted to return to those old loyalties or we're tempted to form new loyalties, right? I want to cement myself to that thing over there, work, or I'm going to cement myself to that person over there instead of in you. And part of what's being communicated is here, there's always this temptation uh, to, to pull away. And so we need to be leaving. We need to be cleaving. 
we need to constantly be fighting and striving for our marriages to cleave to our wives. Again, the question for those of us in this room that are guys who are husbands is, are we accidentally returning to or creating new loyalties? Are we actively cementing ourselves to our wives? Husbands, we are called to love our wives loyally, right? Our fidelity is to them and to this new covenant relationship we have with them, right? We're to love them loyally. We're to love them sacrificially. We're called to lay down our lives for our wives, and we are called to love them so much and so well and so vigilantly that at some point in time that love will become intuitive, that we will love them in the same way that we love our own bodies. Let me call time out really quickly here, and there may be one or two of you in the room who are a little savvy, and it may be that you just went, hey, BP, you just preached a sermon where you just told people what to do, right? Do this, do that, do this, right? What? That's not a Christian sermon, right? A Christian sermon is that our hope is in Christ. And because of our hope in Christ, we are changed. We do live differently. But let me, let me tell you one, uh, just for a second, how it is that Jesus loves us in these ways, right? That he's not just our model for how to love our wives, but he's our substitute. And here's how Jesus loved us. Jesus loved us sacrificially, right? It's really no surprise for those of us uh, in the room this morning, most of us who have been here for a while. Jesus said over and over and over again, he modeled over and over and over again in various ways that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's exactly what he did on the cross. Right? He loved us sacrificially. He laid down his life for us. Jesus loved us intuitively, right? I mean, Jesus somehow could have maybe done something where he sort of knew theoretically about our humanity, but he didn't do that. Jesus became a human being that he might experience humanity, right? That he would understand humanity intuitively. That's why Jesus is our great high priest who understands our frailties, your frailties, who understands your struggles, right? He was tempted in every way that we are. Let that sink in, sink in for a second. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. He understands our frailties, our struggles, and our needs. He loves us intuitively. He loves us sacrificially. And of course, Jesus loves us with the utmost loyalty. Jesus stayed on the cross when he could have used his power to come down. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God in order that he might be united to us. That was the loyalty of his love. Take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this um, word today that is primarily to husbands, but the gospel is for all of us, and sacrificial love and loyal love and intuitively loving other people, all that stuff is, um, is true for all of us. But, but actually, I guess maybe I would pray specifically for husbands today. And Father, I pray that you would help us here at Seven Hills Fellowship, that uh, the husbands of Seven Hills Fellowship, that we would be um, just unbelievably um, empowered by you to love our wives um, in these ways. And Father, I pray that as we love our wives truly and deeply, not falsely, in these ways, Father, that our wives would begin to be set free um, to flourish and to grow. And Father, I pray that that would trickle down to our families, Father. Um, And Father, for those of us who um, are single, I pray, Father, um, that we would love those you bring us into relationship with in these same 
exact ways. And Father, maybe more importantly, definitely more importantly, that we would remember that you love us that way. Father, let your grace and your mercy drive us, Father. Uh, Let the knowledge um, that you love us and that you have declared us righteous and that we are forgiven, let that be the strength that moves us. Father, we pray all these things today um, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.